0: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice. He's given up his office for the sake of the cause. Today we're going to share a classic interview with Pastor Greg Allen. He is the pastor at Bethany Bible Church. He and I had a conversation on the nature of revival, what it is, and some historical context. Well, so we're going to share that conversation in the context of recent events in which people all around this area have been praying for revival. So we'll share that with the bulk of today's program, beginning with the bottom of this hour. So looking forward to sharing that classic conversation. But first, we'll take a look at some of the day's headlines as well. Well, when presumptive Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden picked Senator Kamala Harris, a Democrat from California, as his running mate Tuesday afternoon, the news was not well received by all Democrats, especially progressives who expressed frustration at the selection. Now, there's also a great deal of discussion as to who will fill her Senate seat. Well, there's been an ongoing debate on the left since Biden's frontrunner status was cemented as to who he would pick for his vice presidential running mate uh, that can motivate enough of the base, including supporters of Senator Bernie Sanders, to support the ticket in November. Well, yesterday, Biden announced that Harris was his choice, with Sanders himself throwing his support behind the 55-year-old senator and former 2020 rival. We'll talk more about what others are saying as well. Quick flashback. Kamala Harris said that she believed the women who accused Biden of inappropriate touching and a CNN reporter called Biden's uh, Harris pick a big risk, saying American culture is primed to be racist and sexist, excepting himself. Of course. Vice President Pence told Harris that he looks forward to the vice presidential debate. I'll see you in Salt Lake City, he said. Representative Ilhan Omar's victory in Minnesota on Tuesday. She's now joined squad members, Representative uh, Rashida Tlaib and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who all held their own against uh, Democratic primary challengers in recent weeks. Despite concerns, the self-proclaimed squad members may have trouble holding on to their seats. Omar, the incumbent, defeated attorney Antoine Melton-Mo, who garnered attention for outraising her during the campaign. She said, uh, tweeting, tonight, our movement didn't just win. We earned a mandate for change. Despite outside efforts to defeat us, we once again broke turnout records. Despite the attacks, our support has only grown. It has been the honor of my life to represent you in Congress, and I look forward to continuing to serve the people of the 5th District in the years to come. The Somali-born lawmaker was elected as one of the first Muslim women in Congress, along with Tlaib. Her outspoken criticism of President Trump and advocacy for far-left ideas have gained national attention and, with the help of her Twitter feed, made her a target of Republicans and even some fellow Democrats. In other developments, Minnesota's former lieutenant governor won the GOP primary there and is set to face a conservative Democrat in the key battleground state, and QAnon conspiracy theorist Marjorie Greene is headed to Congress after the Georgia Republican primary win there. Well, the novel coronavirus is spreading at a faster rate in Hawaii than anywhere in the U.S., and Ayan Hirsi Ali calls out Biden for quoting Muhammad, pronouncing Sharia law, in remarks to Muslim voters. Well, President Trump is warning of a mail-in voting disaster, predicting that China and Russia will be grabbing plenty of ballots. And the fox eye makeup trend has been called out for cultural appropriation and racism. In other words, be careful how you apply your makeup. Bowen says there have been no new orders. Send more cancellations for the grounded 737 Max and the mad rush for the exits in New York City continues as the city goes down the tubes. At least that's what those who used to live there are saying. Well, Hollywood celebrities are giddy over Biden's uh, pick of of Kamala Harris for vice president. Based upon her voting record, she, it turns out, is one of the most extreme left-wing Democrats in the Senate. Apparently, Harris wasn't Biden's first choice, but he was forced to choose a candidate of color. That was... uh, Based on statements he himself had made, but she wasn't kind to uh, Biden in debates, you might recall, and um, she called uh, Mr. Smullett a hoax, uh, the hoax, I should say, of Mr. Smullett a modern-day lynching. She indicated that Catholics are unfit to serve in the uh, court system, and predictably, the New York Times was quite thrilled by the announcement. Uh, meanwhile, From the Wall Street Journal editorial board, they write, The choice is revealing about the unusual nature of Mr. Biden's candidacy. He won the nomination as the last-ditch anti-Trump alternative to what would have been the suicidal selection of Bernie Sanders. More than any recent nominee, Mr. Biden is a party figurehead more than a party leader. In adding Ms. Harris to the ticket, he has underscored that a vote for Mr. Biden isn't merely a vote to oust Mr. Trump. It's a vote for the coastal progressives who now dominate the Democrat Party. Then comes this interesting take from CNN. Joe Biden made the pick that maximized his chances of continuing to make the race a straight referendum on Trump, while also selecting someone whose resume suggests being ready to step in if and when Biden decides to step aside, keeping in mind that the majority of Democrats in a recent poll, and I don't know how many were a part of the poll, suggests that they didn't believe he would uh, fulfill his first full term. Another flashback, Harris attacked Biden as a racist segregationist during the Democrat debates. Apparently that has changed. And in another flashback, Tulsi Gabbard rips Harris' abusive record on criminal justice. These are issues that are likely to come up in um, the campaign. Harris was the ringleader in the Brett Kavanaugh character assassination attempt as well. Again, elements that are likely to come up in the campaign that will follow. Well, the Seattle police chief resignation has demonstrated that Black Lives Matter is not about black lives in the editorial. Uh, for the Wall Street Journal, they point out that in the name of Black Lives Matter, the progressives in Seattle have now pushed out a black police chief. In so doing, they have revealed that their efforts are not an attempt to correct police abuses, but an attack on policing itself. Good for Chief Best for resigning rather than trying to do a job that Seattle's political class is actively trying to stop her and her fellow officers from doing. Kimberly Strassel also weighs in, saying this is truly wrong. Welcome to a world in which the first black woman to run Seattle's Police becomes a casualty of racial justice. The only good resignations in Seattle would be of crazy city council and summer of love mayor Durkin. And only one in four Hispanics have heard the, um, the word Latinx. Uh, the woke word has yet to make a splash outside the media, but splash it will. And Sweden, after refusing to shut down, sees deaths vanish, we're being told. From the story, Sweden's leaders faced a steady downbeat, or rather drumbeat, of international condemnation as deaths curved upward from April through June, though the curve flattened in July. Daily deaths fell to the low 30s in mid-June and have been in single digits since the 20th of July. Well, Black Lives Matter Chicago publicly defended uh, rioters and looters, saying our futures have been looted from us. Loot? Back. It's a form of reparations, suggesting, well, they have insurance. Neighbors are unhappy as demonstrations move east into residential areas in Portland, and a Pennsylvania district has mandated white supremacy lessons for kindergartners. The wealthy school district says supporting cops and not watching the news is Racist. I hope you're keeping track of what's considered racist these days because it's hard to follow. The Big Ten and Pac-12 are the first marquee conferences to postpone the fall football. And the UK is officially in recession for the first time in 11 years after a record 20.4% slump. There's nothing to see here, so says Governor Andrew Cuomo. He won't support an independent investigation into New York's nursing home deaths. He says it's merely political. New York Democrats are pushing for law, mandating 500 hours of training for shampoo assistance. The U.S. government signed a deal with Moderna for 100 million doses of a COVID vaccine. And TSA is intercepting many more guns, despite far fewer air travelers. Well, on this day in history, 1939, the MGM movie musical The Wizard of Oz, starring Judy Garland, has its world premiere at the Strand Theater in Oconomowice or something, Wisconsin, three days before opening in Hollywood. On this day in history, 1909, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, home of the Indianapolis 500, first opens. And 1981, IBM introduces its first personal computer, the Model 5150 at a press conference in New York. And finally, on this day in history, 2004, New Jersey Governor James McGreevy he announces his resignation and acknowledges that he'd had an extramarital affair with another man, 2004. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to continue to take a look at some of the day's news and anticipate my long conversation with Pastor Greg Allen, pastor of Bethany Bible Church. We're going to talk about uh, revival, what it is and how it's... Uh, Revealed itself in the past and what we might pray and hope for in the future. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Today I'm looking forward to sharing a classic uh, conversation I had with Pastor Greg Allen from Bethany Bible Church. We talked about revival, and at that time, back in 2015, m- people were praying in our communities for revival. Well, that sense of urgency has only increased in recent days. And we're going to share my conversation with him on what revival is, um, what it means, um, how it typically begins, and how we should pray to see God move in our cities now. So that's coming up in our next segment and through the remainder of today's program. Well, On Tuesday night, protests continued in Portland for the 11th straight week since the killing of George Floyd. There were two protest events in Portland. One group gathered at Southwest 3rd Avenue and Main Street. A second group of a couple hundred people met at Laurelhurst Park and marched to the Kelly Building in Southeast Portland, home of the Portland Police Southeast Precinct and the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office. Well, As the group arrived at the Kelly Building around 9.45 p.m., Portland police tweeted a warning to those gathered outside the building that they were not allowed to enter the property. If you enter, you are trespassing and subject to arrest, use of tear gas, crowd control agents, and or impact weapons, the tweet read. Well, around 1240 a.m., that is, a couple members of the uh, the group entered the Kelly Building property, but left after police made an announcement warning the crowd to stay off the property. Most of the crowd left at around 130 a.m. Police said they made no arrests and no tear gas or crowd control munitions were used. So, Thankful for that. On Tuesday, Multnomah County's new district attorney, Mike Schmidt, announced a new policy that dictates how his office is going to prosecute those who had already been arrested during the ongoing protests here in Portland. He said the district attorney's office won't prosecute Protesters arrested for city ordinance violations that don't include property damage, theft or use of or threat of force against another person. On Monday night, an unlawful assembly was declared outside Portland's police north precinct and nine people were arrested. Kamala Harris, um, she is the pick for vice presidential running mate for uh, Joe Biden, but she has not been embraced by everyone on the left. In fact, one headline read, it's the middle finger to BLM, Black Lives Matter, and progressives. Outraged left turns on Biden-Harris ticket and slammed Joe's choice of self-styled top cop and her stringent record as California AG. Now, no vice presidential pick is going to satisfy everyone. That's true for either political party. But for progressives uh, who have... Uh, had significant sway in recent um, years in the Democrat Party. This may be significant. Well, shortly after Biden announced Kamala Harris, would join him on the ticket in the November presidential election. Several progressives on the left in the Democrat Party criticized that decision. Well, there you have it. Joe Biden gives the middle finger to progressives and Black Lives Matter protesters and uh, Black voters under the age of 50. Status Status Quo co-founder, Jordan Cheriton wrote in a tweet. One journalist, Walker Bragman, shared crime bill author Joe Biden selects top cop Kamala Harris for VP as racial justice and police uh, abolition protests continue across the country. And while Bernie Sanders, who had been one of Biden's rivals for the Democrat nomination, congratulated Harris on Twitter, saying she understands what it takes to stand up for the working people, several of his supporters disagreed. With that decision, Brianna Joy Gray, who served as Sanders National Press Secretary, wrote, We are in the midst of the largest protest movement in American history, the subject of which is excessive policing. And the Democratic Party chose a top cop and the author of the Joe Biden crime bill to save us from Trump. The contempt for the base is wow. One progressive commentator, Kyle Kulinski, shared Biden going with the st- strategically brilliant move of picking somebody for vice president who is despised by both the right and the left Uh, in a joint statement roots action and progressive democrats of america wrote that harris failed for years to hold police accountable for gross misconduct in california then touted her commitment to police accountability in the wake of george floyd's murder journalist michael tracy called Biden's selection a nightmarishly bad pick in every way Kamala's presidential campaign was a total humiliating disaster, one of the worst of all time, considering the amount of unearned hype she received. Did everybody miss that or what, he asked. One critical moment in Harris's campaign came when Representative Tulsi Gabbard blasted her for putting over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. Harris is the first uh, woman and the first black attorney general in the history of the Golden State, portraying herself as a progressive reformer during her own presidential bid. Uh, But some have cast doubts on that claim and aren't sure if it will hold up as she uh, runs alongside Biden. Time after time in an op ed, The New York Times uh, says when progressives urged her to embrace criminal justice reforms as a district attorney and then the state's attorney general, Ms. Harris opposed them and stayed silent. Law professor uh, Laura Bazelin wrote last year in an op-ed for the New York Times. Harris turned legal technicalities into weapons so she could cement injustices, added Bazelin, a former director of the Loyola Law School Project for the Innocent in Los Angeles. Before serving as attorney general, the 55-year-old Harris was the district attorney in San Francisco. She was elected to the Senate in 2016. The Daily Sacramento Bee wrote in a June editorial, Kamala Harris had a reputation in California as a prosecutor and attorney general who waited rather than led, who moved on controversial issues only once she saw what was politically viable. As uh, it concerns police brutality, the subject very much in the news following the death of George Floyd, a black man whose killing in the hands of police in May sparked the nationwide protests, Harris has also been criticized for... Uh, failing to intervene in cases involving police violence. And while serving as attorney general in 2016, for example, she opposed a bill to investigate deadly police shootings following the death of a stabbing suspect shot 21 times by police that sparked huge protests. So in terms of whether or not the... um, The pick of Kamala Harris as the vice presidential running mate is going to serve well with Biden's base. And again, how influential are those uh, writers that I quoted? I don't know. But for the progressive wing of the party, um, there is some dissatisfaction. Now, whether or not that will translate into uh, we won't go to the polls remains to be seen. It certainly will not translate into we're going to support Donald Trump. But that will be one of the challenges for Biden and his new running mate. Meanwhile, a presumptive um, Democratic presidential nominee selection uh, to be his running mate is making her the uh, subject of a lot of debate within the pro-life community as well. Pro-life activists who, of course, would not vote for Biden because he's not a pro-life candidate. They're criticizing the move with one calling the Biden-Harris ticket the most pro-abortion presidential ticket in American history. Meanwhile, abortion rights activists are praising the nomination, calling Harris a reproductive freedom champion. Uh, in um, uh, Biden's tweet on Tuesday afternoon, he says, I have the great honor to announce that I picked Kamala Harris – a fearless fighter for the little guy and one of the country's finest public servants as my running mate. The 55-year-old was one of his fiercest critics during the Democratic presidential primary uh, debates, criticizing the former vice president's past opposition to federally mandated busing and desegregated schools. She served as the district attorney for San Francisco, as I mentioned, uh, and was uh, very outspoken when it came to Uh, abortion rights. Instead of investigating Planned Parenthood in the case involving Daleiden and Associates, uh, she uh, partnered with them. She was elected to prosecute Uh, Rather, she elected to prosecute Deliden and Merritt. She's faced criticism from social conservatives over her ties to uh, the the abortion giant Planned Parenthood and her prosecution of these activists, Um, says um, Susan B. Anthony List President Marjorie Dannenfelser. Kamala Harris is an extremist who supports abortion on demand through birth, paid for by taxpayers and even infanticide, an agenda rejected by the overwhelming majority of Americans, including millions of independents and can and file Democrats. So um, again, this will be a major issue. Uh, those who support abortion rights are not going to see this as a negative, and those who are pro-life are probably not inclined to vote for Joe Biden, but this will be an issue that will certainly be um, at the fore during the election and the campaign in the months to come. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk with Pastor Greg Allen, Uh, He is the pastor of Bethany Bible Church. He and I had a conversation some time ago on the nature of revival. What is it historically? What has preceded a revival? How have people prayed for and seen revivals in their respective community? And given uh, current events, uh, given recent events, I think it's very timely for us to reconsider um, what history and the present has to say about revivals. Pastor Greg Allen, my guest, for the remainder of today's program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We are adrift as a nation, and that may apply in our uh, smaller communities, in our families, even in our own hearts. And I invited uh, Pastor Greg Allen from Bethany Bible Church uh, to join me once again and to spend what I hope will be sufficient time to really cover the subject of revival uh, from its history um, through how we might call upon God to see a revival in our communities and in our time as well. So I appreciate uh, Pastor um, Alan, that you are willing to come back and to revisit this subject because I think it really is crucial if the body of Christ is going to have an impact in the culture, not because we want to change politics, even though that may change, mm. not because we want to see uh, certain other things done, but because we know that this is the Great Commission. We are ambassadors of Christ. There's a commission on our lives to to preach the gospel. We want to see uh, Christ's name proclaimed in our community. So that really is the motivation is to see men and women come to know the love of Christ. So I appreciate your coming back to talk about this subject of revival because I think it's central to what we all hope to see happen.
0: Well, thank you for having me back very much.
1: You know, the the word revival, the idea of revival is oftentimes misunderstood. We uh, will schedule a, a, a revival, a series of meetings, maybe over the course of a week, and that's mm-hmm. referred to as a revival. We use the phrase or the word Offhand, Boy, I'd really love to see a revival. Maybe we should begin by just defining what it is we're talking about when we use the word revival in its historic sense as well as what we might be seeking today.
0: Well, thank you. There's a characterization, I think, of revival. I was doing a little reading recently before we came uh, here, and uh, I read one historian talking about how he was driving around and he saw a church with a sign that said, Revival every, we- every night this week but Monday. And then as he drove a little further down the road, he saw another church that said, Revival every Monday. <laughs> and I thought, boy, those churches really ought to get together. They ought to work this out. But that kind of characterizes the, uh, the way sometimes people think of revival. It's a scheduled meeting, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of singing, uh, some balloons for the kids. And that's not really what we're talking about when we're talking about a revival. Uh, A working definition that I've tried to develop, and I have to tell you, I've read all kinds of different uh, definitions, but this is the one that kind of, I think, summarizes the idea. It is, first of all, a work of God, and it's a work upon his church. Uh, The definition that I have come up with is that a revival is a gracious, that is a giving, work of God, in response to the concerted prayers of his people, his people getting together to pray for it, by which the Holy Spirit profoundly renews the church from out of a period of spiritual decline and grants such remarkable power and success to the proclamation of the gospel that it dramatically transforms a generation. And there's several points in there that are very important in this. It is, first of all, uh, work of the Holy Spirit, not something that men make. Men may be involved in 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 the participation of it, but it's primarily a gracious work of God. It is to his church. We sometimes wait around for revival to just kind of fall down from mm-hmm. heaven and, and hit those sinners over there that we'd like to see changed. And really, it's a work that God does upon his church. And it's, it, it involves the preaching of the gospel, It's an empowerment of God's people to proclaim the message that changes lives one life at a time. And it's that transformation by the power of the gospel that ends up transforming culture.
1: That revival in the church, that reviving, uh, then generates outward and and has an impact on the culture. One of the best examples that we might point to uh, is the example of Evan Roberts. One of the points that you have made in our previous conversations is that historically, revival is always preceded by a period of prayer. And Evan Roberts' example is one that I think might set a good example for us.
0: Well, it's an important one because it happens to touch the city of Portland. And what the story is, very quickly, uh, Evan. and by the way, the, the story of Evan Roberts has really been instrumental in setting me on this course where I'm driving everybody nuts talking about revival all the time. But it's it's a story about a young man, 26 years old. He was a he was a, a miner. He worked in the mines. And what he used to do is, as a young believer working in the mines, he would meet the miners as they're going into the tunnels, and he'd hand them a Bible verse. And then he would hurry up and finish his work and then get out of the the tunnel as quickly as he could so he could meet them as they're coming out and ask them, so what did you think of the verse I gave you? And he would pray for them and pray with them. Uh, it came a point where he felt a really great burden for his people, the Welsh people. And this would be around 1904. And he uh, asked a pastor to allow him to present his burden to a, to a church, and uh, the, the pastor was not really willing to do it. He said, well, there's a meeting afterwards. If you want to talk to him, then you can. And it turned out to be 17 people showed up. And he figured, those are the people that God is giving me. He shared with them the burden he had for revival, he told them that he felt the burden of God that 100,000 of his fellow Welshmen come to Christ, which is an amazing number.
1: It was outrageous. It was outrageous.
0: <laughs> Only God could do that. But he talked to them. He told them that one of the things that's very important in the story is he told them there are some certain things they need to do. He told them they need to put away any unconfessed sin. Uh, they need to put away any doubtful habits, any questionable gray areas in their life, They need to obey the Holy Spirit promptly, and they need to confess Christ publicly. And I read that list, and I go, man, sign me up. That's great. And so he convinced these people to continue to pray, and they began to pray. They kept praying through times where there wasn't anybody showing up to join them. Uh, He just kept this burden going, and they continued to pray. Pretty soon more people came, and pretty soon more in time, there were vast numbers of people showing up to pray together for revival. And here's the amazing thing. A hundred thousand Welsh people came to Jesus Christ in six months. It utterly transformed the nation of Wales. And word about this got out. Uh, uh, people from people from the press were coming from all over parts of the world to come and, and explore what was happening in Wales at this time. It began what was called the global revival of 1904, 1905. It reached all the way to the city of Portland, Oregon. And in 1905, Portland experienced a great revival. Every day, businesses were closing up from 11 o'clock to 2 o'clock so that the employees and the customers could go to one of the many prayer groups that were gathering throughout the city in numbers of hundreds, uh, and, and in some cases thousands, There were people gathering together at one point, 10,000 in number, for a worship service in downtown Portland that went all the way up into midnight. The newspapers were talking about it and thinking, what is going on? There's a great upheaval going on spiritually in the city of Portland. That that started me thinking of what a great place this is, by the way, that we live in, and what great things God has done here, and what, what I'm praying for him to do again.
1: One of the things I love about that story is reading what the Oregonian, uh, what the headlines were in the Oregonian during that time. I would love to see headlines like this. (laughs) Uh, again, that were in the uh, in the Oregonian at midnight, nearly 10,000 people. This is the Oregon Journal, rather. At midnight, nearly 10,000 people singing hymns, proclaimed the power of revival. Uh, it was written that the unique uh, this was the unique night of Portland history. I think it's important to point out that in Portland, it, it, this uh, revival that you refer to in Wales began with a young man in 1904 praying. <laughs> but in 1898, uh, before that revival began, there were some men in Portland who went to Council right. Crest and they began praying that God would revive
0: the church here. As I've been studying the stories of great awakenings in our nation, what is always surprising to find out is that there's a prayer movement going on before them, mm-hmm. And it's a very earnest one. It's a prayer movement that uh, we're going way back in time here now to borrow from Jonathan Edwards, what he called extraordinary prayer, which means unusual times of prayer where people from other denominations gather together and they, they forget about the Category B and C issues. They concentrate on Category A issues and they pray together. And God responds to those prayers in time by giving revival. It's kind of like an investment they make for what will come later.
1: The men in uh, in the Portland area began praying in 1898. The revival came in 1905. We're going to take a quick break, but we are going to continue our conversation. One of the things that struck me about Evan Roberts was that he felt a great burden. I wonder, do we feel a great burden? Are we willing to do the four things that he mentioned to those 17 Um, were necessary in order for them to really storm the gates of heaven and ask God to move in their midst. We're going to talk about that when we come back. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Pastor Greg Allen is with me, pastor of Bethany Bible Church, and our subject is revival. Would you like to see one in our community? With me in studio is Pastor Greg Allen from Bethany Bible Church. The subject is revival. As we were talking about Evan Roberts just a few moments ago, who sparked a revival in uh, in wales that began sometime around 1904 you mentioned that he had felt a great burden and that motivated him to pray and to seek others to pray with him and he had suggested four things that if people were going to pray in earnest they needed to be willing to do can we spend just a moment looking at at these four things because it might inform us about the posture that we ought to assume when we're uh praying and asking god for revival
0: absolutely The four things that he mentioned, uh, and and I'd have to say these were practices of his own life. Mm -hmm. A real quick little snippet about Evan Roberts. People used to notice him standing there moving his lips a lot, and they thought he was crazy. Uh, He was a young man, though, that any moment he felt the need for prayer, he stopped right where he was and just stood there and prayed. And so he was a man who embodied these kind of qualities. He said four things that uh, as believers in pursuit of revival, we need to put away any unconfessed sin. That is anything in our lives that uh, we're kind of holding as uh, debts before God that we need to take care of. He also suggested that they put away any doubtful habits. And I would hate to make a list of those because Mm -hmm. that would be different for everybody, but I think the Holy Spirit lets you know what those things are in your life you need to have go. He said they must obey the Spirit promptly. And that, of course presupposes we're listening to the Holy Spirit's call in our life. And when he says something, go do it. And then finally, and most importantly, be courageous and bold and have that steel rod down your spine that allows you to confess Jesus Christ publicly. Because the church, as it says in First Timothy, is the pillar and ground of the truth. The world doesn't know about Jesus Christ unless we declare him. And in what you're what you're suggesting, what we do to pursue revival, I, I was thinking uh, I had mentioned earlier, or may mention in time here, a man named J. Edwin Orr, who was a great historian of revival. He wrote a song that we all sing. It's the song "Cleanse Me." It's the one we go, "Search me, O oh God, and know my heart today." There's a line in there that says, "O oh, Holy Ghost, revival comes from Thee. Send a revival." And you know the next line? Mm. Start the work in me. If we want revival, it's got to start by the person in the mirror. And by doing things like setting aside the things in our life that the Lord says must go, do, getting rid of the things that hinder the, the liberty of his full possession of our hearts and our lives, learning to be a people of prayer by habit, not just on special occasions. I would say learning to be people of the Bible learning to daily spend time at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ in his word, developing those habits, church attendance, not just attendance, but habitual involvement, Uh, learning to share our faith with the Lord Jesus Christ uh, with others. These are just simple habits of life, but they make us the kind of people that God would see fit to give revival to.
1: I think it also makes us the kind of people who feel a great burden. Yeah. Uh, when we are distracted by doubtful habits, then we're less likely to feel a great burden that would ultimately lead us into a life of uh, of prayer. Um, we were talking a few minutes ago about the meaning of revival, and I should mention that I'm going to be referencing notes on revival that was uh, assembled by Pastor Allen that he has graciously made available on the Bethany Bible Church website. And I would highly recommend that you download that because, much of what we're going to be talking about here today is uh, on that uh, document. Um, let me just ask you the best way to find it. I went to the website; I found it there, but I had to go through a couple of hoops to to do that.
0: <laughs> well, we like to make it worth doing, you know. <laughs> well, uh, my assistant has told me that there's two ways to access it. You can go to uh, Bethany Bible Church face ba- Facebook page; that would be one resource, and uh, you can find it there. Probably the easiest way would be to go to bethanybible.org. Now, make sure it's .org, not .com, because you'll get a church in Texas. I've already done that. Uh, It's bethanybible.org. And if you go to the top uh, bar, you look for where it says Downloads, and you go down the list of all the really good things that you can get from our website, and you'll find a, a, a link to Revival. You open that up. And then you'll see another link on that page that will lead you to this document. And I would, I would love to just have people take it, use it. It's yours to use. Uh, share the information with others. Uh, my great hope is that this inspires people to gather together more frequently for prayer for revival.
1: You reference in this document Earl Carnes, or I'm not sure I pronounced the name correctly, Um, but he wrote that revival primarily applies to believers and results in a deeper Christian walk, witness, and work both at home and abroad. Um, He, uh, and then you quote from there, um, I'm not sure if it's a, you quote Psalm 80, Mm -hmm. 18 and 19. Can you read that for
0: us? Sure, it says, revive us and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. And the reason I love that quote, that's Psalm 80, verse 18 through 19. It's, it's that God hears the, the prayers of his people and lifts them from their apathy. If, you know, if you were to ask me what's the greatest hindrance right now to revival, I'd say apathy. Apathy on the part of his church. Often because they don't know. They don't know the situation. They don't know what God can do. And so I love this prayer. Revive us. That's talking to God. Mm -hmm. Restore us. God will do it. Um, Another similar one I find in uh, Psalm 85, verses 4 through 7. I, I believe revival is what happens when God answers this prayer. It says, restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. Uh, you know, one of the things you got to think about was revival, the word itself implies that before you can have revival, you must first be vived. You must be alive in in a relationship with God, but you've become dull and, apathetic and, and you, it's just the prayer God give life to me again give me the energy of my salvation help me to again pursue you with vigor and faithfulness and that is
1: our prayer for revival we're with Greg Allen he is pastor at Bible uh, Bethany Bible Church and has uh, done extensive study on the subject of revival you've taught on the subject and we are referencing uh, notes on revival that are available to you at the Bethany Bible Um, dot org website you can find it there you can also go to their facebook page and you are free and he's graciously made it available free for you to study to share with others Uh, And if it sparks something in our hearts, um, then that's the that's the goal with me in studio is Pastor Greg Allen from Bethany Bible Church. We're talking about the subject of revival, what it means, what it takes to uh, to spark a revival. And is it something that we can just declare like we're going to have a revival next week and expect that everything's going to change? Uh, We mentioned that uh, Pastor Greg has uh, a document notes on revival that I'm referencing that he's made available. We now have a link. On the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page so that you can easily get to that document, download, and print it there. We'll do the same on kpdq.com. In either case, you'll be able to find that more easily. Um, And again, I think it's a great resource for studying, understanding, and beginning a prayer life that um, is... is How want I say this? That starts with a great burden. Let's let's go there. Um, One of the finest works on the subject of the history of revivals you uh, reference in Notes on Revival, um, Malcolm McDowell and Alvin Reed, Firefall, How God Has Shaped History Through Revivals. And in it, they distinguish six different types of revival. Uh, let's talk about uh, different ways that revivals occur, whether that's for an individual or for a congregation or an entire community.
0: Absolutely. And before we do, let me reference that resource one more time and recommend it as a great, great book on the subject of revival. You'll get a great deal of information. Again, from
1: Again, Firefall, well, now, how it, God has shaped history through revival. I'm
0: excited to report that it has just been reissued uh-huh. as Firefall 2.0. Well, there you go. (laughs) So so that's what you want to look for on uh, Amazon. Uh, They uh, begin by talking about the nature of revival, and they distinguish six very helpful categories of revival. And to some degree, these will make sense. There's, for example, personal revival, where an individual Christian uh, has, if you will, an awakening and a rededication of their life to Jesus Christ. There's an institutional revival which usually happens within a church or a school or a college where many members of that institution uh, are awakened to a new renewal of a relationship with Christ. A regional revival would be a third one. And that's one that spreads within a local community or a group of churches or a town. Or, If you read some of the stories of uh, Jonathan Edwards and his uh, work in Northampton, uh, that would be an example of a regional revival. A specialized revival would be one that focuses on persons of a particular age group or context. And an example of that might be the Jesus movement in the 1970s. Many of us who are listening right now were products of that, that revival in the 70s. And that was largely focused on youth or in colleges and universities. A national revival. We've had several in our own nation's history, and that would be the transformation of a a movement within an entire uh, country, and then a global revival, which is an impact on several nations on every continent at once. A great example of that would be the uh, revival that was associated with Evan Roberts in 1904. Uh, each of these revivals, uh, you might say kind of blend into one another at times, but it's helpful to see those distinctions.
1: What are some of the things um, that uh, an area experiences prior to a revival coming we tend to think it's the 21st century revival is kind of an arcane notion that only happened in years past because things weren't as bad then as they are now and it's not likely given our highly technological society that a revival is even possible so let's talk about some of the things that typically um, uh, are
0: in place when a revival comes well, this is one area where history is really helpful to us because very helpful. I we, yeah, we we can we can see some patterns. Uh, when you say people might say, "Well, this is a technological age," and why would we ever expect revival? That's exactly the kind of age that I would expect <laughs> revival when it's not expected. Uh, when I've done some of the reading, I've kind of noted two broad categories of of decline. And this is perhaps the most helpful thing for me in my own personal study of revival to see this particular pattern and how it relates to our own day. In the history of some of the greatest revival movements in our nation's history, there have been two areas where spiritual decline has been most noted. Number one, you might expect, is the church. And here's, uh, here's how it's characterized. There's empty ritualism that uh, ends up being substituted for genuine worship. Uh, there's a lot of skepticism about the authority of the Bible, and that skepticism begins to dis- stifle ministry greatly. Uh, there's a there's an adoption of the world's patterns and forms. Uh, the, the church begins to act and perform and do things like the world in order to gain a sense of relevancy. It tends to drift with the tide of moral changes. It begins to talk and act and think like the world... It loses its focus on the ministry of the life-transforming power of the gospel. And it suffers in all of this with a notable loss of numbers. People just quit going to church. And in some degree, it's because they don't see anything there that they need anymore. Mm -hmm. And in culture, there's another spiritual decline. Uh, Rational uh, an emphasis on human reason and skepticism. Uh, or science falsely so-called, we sometimes call it, that becomes elevated while the idea of divine revelation, God's word, becomes a subject to be mocked and ridiculed. There's a long pattern of inferior and immoral leadership uh, in government or in in the uh, important institutions of society that leads to a loss of social direction. People don't have hope anymore. Uh, people begin to get spiritual. You hear this all the time in our own age. People are talking about how spiritual they are. But when you talk about spirituality, they're looking inward, not outward to God. It becomes more paganistic. Uh, Compassion becomes cold. Uh, Immorality becomes the norm. It becomes increasingly shocking in its expression. And people just get mad at Christianity for having stifled them for so long. And the problems of society, when you look at them all, seem pandemic and without any solution. It's just like things cannot get better. Those are two areas where, where in, in the history of revival, those are the kind of times just before God gives revival. And those revivals come, those awakenings come, and totally transform a generation.
1: You quote a couple of um, of people involved in revival, um, speaking about their culture at the time. And Thomas Secker is one of them. He was then the Bishop of Oxford. And in 1738, he writes about his time. And again, it seems so relevant and rings so familiar with our own time. Will you read what uh, Thomas Secker writes as the Bishop of Oxford?
0: Yes, and and this would be somewhat, of course, with a great deal of uh, street cred in, in the time. This would be in 1738 he wrote, In this we cannot be mistaken that an open and professed disregard of religion has become, through a variety of unhappy causes, the distinguishing character of the age. Such are the desoluteness and contempt of principle in the highest part of the world and the profligacy of intemperance and fearlessness of committing crimes in the lower part, as must, if the torrent of impiety not stop become absolutely fatal he said christianity is ridiculed and railed at with very little reserve and the teachers of it without any at all that was in 1738 just before the second uh, before the first great awakening
1: and again as you write this the condition of the times just before the second great awakening in america was also dismal
0: yes Uh, the gains that had been made in the previous generation through the second uh or the First Great Awakening, and that was a revival, by the way, that did so much to fuel the American Revolution and make us into a country. Well, people began to forget the things that they had gained. Uh, people had begun abandoning churches and neglect, neglecting uh, worship. Uh, people were uh, n- leaving churches in terrible numbers. Uh, the, uh, the book that I made reference to, uh, uh, Firefall, it, uh, speaks of, uh, of the times this way. While the revolution was being won to secure fundamental freedoms, the religious convictions of many people were being lost. Promiscuity, profanity, gambling, drunkenness increased. Many of the ideas from Europe were accepted and promoted uh, by Americans such as Thomas Paine, Ethan Allen, and other opponents of biblical Christianity. These ideas gained popularity in colleges, and when that happens, of course, they trickle down into every area of culture, uh, Thomas Paine's book The Age of Reason was published in France and sent to the United States and Paine ridiculed the Christian belief in divine revolution, revelation. Excuse me. Uh, well, these are the kind of times that they were living in. If I may share a little more, during this time there was an interesting development. People began to develop and attend what were called infidel clubs. And these were clubs that began to form and abound and they were really rather shocking. They were Places where people would basically go and just act as bad as they possibly could. Uh, Men drank themselves to death. Uh, There were a whole lot of illegitimate births and there was no sense of any kind of a tracing down who belonged to who. Uh, Colleges were places in which religion was mocked and sometimes the colleges were involved in these infidel clubs. Scripture was treated with skepticism. A lot of free thinking and, and, you know, those of who are familiar with history, free thinkers, it's a kind of style of uh, unbelief. It uh, bore a great deal of influence over the minds of young people. You might have heard of Layman Beecher, who was a great preacher from another era. This is what he wrote about colleges. College was in most in a most ungodly state. College church was almost extinct. Most of the students were skeptical and rowdy. The rowdies were plenty Wine and liquor were kept in many rooms. Sounds like some of the places I've visited. Intemperance, profanity, gambling, licentiousness were common. Most of the classes before me were infidels and called each other Voltaire or Rousseau or D. And this were, these were great freethinkers of the mm-hmm. time. You know, sometimes people say that uh, college is the an- education is the answer to our problems. And I always think, well, if that's true, then... Uh, college seniors would be more moral than college freshmen. And if you've ever been to a college, you know that's not, true, not the case. But these were the character of the times before the second Great Awakening.
1: So we tend to think that times were never as bad as our own, um, that uh, they had a need for a Great Awakening, but it wasn't as as great a need as our own time. This gives us a picture of just how desperate times were for them and how desperate times are for us might also merit the kind of move that these uh, these men and women prayed for and, and I experienced.
0: Add, it, and I would add, it gives us hope for the times.
1: With me in studio, Greg Allen, pastor of Bethany Bible Church, and our subject is revival. You mentioned uh, in the last segment that uh, whenever a revival um, is about to occur, that there's a spiritual deadness in the church, that there's a deterioration in the secular society. And uh, you offered some examples of what the uh, society was like, even in the 1700s. Um, That sounded all too familiar, that our times today are very much like the times that preceded great generation transforming revivals. Well, let's talk about how revivals um, typically begin, and then let's actually look at some of these revivals that have occurred.
0: Well, what happens with that spiritual deadness that we talked about, it begins to encourage God's people to look at the times. We mentioned earlier one of the Psalms that talks about how God... uh, awakens his people to the times and they even cry out uh, uh, to him almost for mercy and uh, it's always god's people we can't expect the non-believer to mm-hmm. go oh we need revival it's god's people who do it and uh, when they see the times they see the disparate nature of, of the times they're living and they begin to pray um, and so a couple of things uh, in, historically tend to occur first of all there is a a sense of an unqualified commitment to God. It starts with a recognition of the desperate need and people just begin to commit themselves to to God. Uh, One writer says every revival in history is started when that one or those few have recognized the need and have become desperate enough to offer unqualified commitment instead of qualified compromise to God. Desperation leads to conviction, repentance, cleansing, And revival there's a sense that unless God does something uh, all is lost and so the appeal comes to beseech God to move his hand second of all there's a humble repentance from sin there's a personal repentance in which Christians seek to turn away from the kind of hidden sins and earthly habits that hinder their walk uh, with God there's a sense that they own the sins of the time if I can give a challenge to our listeners Uh, go to what I call the nines that's Ezra nine Nehemiah nine and Daniel nine now these are great great men of God and they pray for revival in those passages but what's interesting they always say God forgive us Mm -hmm. they these great godly men own the sins of the time and pray for repentance and then thirdly it's when God's people just begin to pray uh, they gather together with other churches, with other Christians. They cross denominational lines, and they engage in what I, what Jonathan Edwards, not me, Jonathan Edwards, calls extraordinary prayer, where they pray uh, at unusual times. They say no to dinner. They say no to to sleeping in. They get together at early times or difficult times. They make the effort to humble themselves before God and pray.
1: This is a is a remarkable. Thing that precedes an actual revival coming um one of the quotes that you have here again from mcdowell and reed in the in the book what is it firefall mm-hmm. is the only place you'll ever find power coming before prayer is in the dictionary yes. <laughs> <laughs> and these are people men and women who are willing to say no to anything else in favor of prayer mm-hmm. now that's quite a challenge in the 21st century Um, In the 20th century, in the 19th century, there were fewer distractions, fewer things to draw our attention away. I mean, it's still a challenge in any uh, generation to to devote oneself to prayer. But to simply turn the television off, to say no to good things Mm -hmm. in order to devote
0: oneself to prayer can be a real challenge. I would imagine most churches are like this. If you want to end the party, just announce it's a prayer meeting and people seem to leave. Uh, it's a sad fact. Uh, it's it's perhaps an a, a, a expression of the apathy. But here's what I've learned in looking at the stories of revival. When people begin to gather together to pray for revival, that gathering together to pray is itself a part of God's answer to the prayer. Because gathering together to pray for revival is the beginning rumblings of revival. So, uh, just... Forming the effort to pray and gather together to beseech God for revival is a great step forward.
1: I want to spend our next uh, segment talking about revivals in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, Our segment here is short, so I wanted to wait until our next one, but I I want to talk about revivals in the past. I think we will find great encouragement and perhaps inspiration. Um, We began the program talking about the fact that there was a, a great burden that was felt, and... Sometimes we have to ask God to even give us the burden. We we don't really have the heart that He wants us to have toward our own need and the need of our community and our church. Uh, maybe we, Lord, you know, um, search my search me, O oh God, and know my heart, know my anxious thoughts. If we don't have a burden um, for the lost, a burden for the church to be revived, then maybe we need to start right there.
0: One of my favorite verses on this subject is from Second Chronicles. Uh, 714 if my people who are called by my name uh, if I can be real quickly that's Christians I know it's a promise to Israel but uh, we are called Christians we are called by God's name if they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways God makes a great promise then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land and that's not just usual kind of prayer to humble ourselves to to seek god's face because i'm not looking at it as i should to to confess our sins to him that takes great work it takes great travail of soul Mm -hmm. but those are the kind of prayers that god answers
1: we're going to take a break when we come back we're going to talk about uh, the kinds of revivals that we've seen in the past and again i'm I think we'll be inspired, encouraged, and hopeful, recognizing that it begins with humility and prayer and that great uh, felt burden. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My guest, Greg Allen, pastor of Bethany Bible Church, will be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Greg Allen is my guest, pastor of Bethany Bible Church, and we're talking about revival. You can download notes on revival that we're referencing in our conversation here today. On The Georgine Rice Show Facebook page, there is a direct link. You can also go to bethanybible.org. Uh, There's a link there, and there will be at the close of the show at kpdq.com on the Georgine Rice Show uh, link there as well. We've been talking a lot about the necessity of revival, what precedes a revival, uh, gaining a a great burden for uh, for revival. But let's talk about revivals that have actually taken place in the past, because I think they provide um, some encouragement uh, for us and some insight into how God moves.
0: Well, yes, we're talking about something that really has historical substance and i think you can even trace the history of the united states in its and i'm going to say this carefully in its most positive turning points as the history of its revivals those have been the i, I would say the most uh, important factor in the positive turns in our nation's history and i uh, i don't know that every historian would agree with me I'm, I'm i'm not a historian at all so why why would they but um i can identify six, I would say, key revival movements in our nation's history. Most of our listeners would know some of them. First of all would be the Great Awakening, which was a, an event that occurred in the 1700s uh, in uh, in England, uh, the ministry of John and Charles Wesley, George Whitefield. Uh, George Whitfield traveled back and forth, I think, uh, a total of 14 times from England to the uh, to the colonies and was a great instrument in in helping to revive uh, or to fan into flames the the first great awakening. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was a great instrument in those times in the early 1700s, which were formative to our nation's history and its its a Christian culture, which led ultimately to the kind of ideals that uh, gave us the American Revolution. Now, the ideals. Of that great awakening, the first one began to wane in time, and and around the late 1700s, early 1800s, another awakening occurred. That would be the second great awakening. It was a revival that spread across the frontier through the uh, uh, tent meeting uh, movement. It spread to colleges and and churches. Uh, uh, mostly, the ministry of Charles Finney, who is a a uh, great uh, revivalist. Uh, he, he was, I have mixed feelings about Charles Finney. He was a great man in a lot of ways, but he tried to formulate revival. If you just do these things, revival is just going to happen guaranteed. Well, that wasn't true. Uh, but others like a- a- Hassel uh, Nettleton or James McReady. Now, that began to wane in time as well. And uh, then comes a, a movement that not many people know about. Uh, I've just myself begun to learn about it. and Because it it didn't have a specific leader, uh, most people don't know about it. It's sometimes called the Layman's Prayer Revival, or sometimes it's called the Third Great Awakening. And I want to tell a little bit about this. This is an exciting story. Uh, In the times that we're talking about, the church really began to suffer. Around 1844 or so, an important event happened. And that was when William Miller... Uh, who had many followers, the Millerites, Uh, made predictions about the return of the Lord. People began to do what you would fear they would do. They'd sold all their stuff and got white robes and set up on a mountain waiting for the Lord to return. He didn't come. Uh, That's often called, by the way, the great disappointment for an obvious reason. Read
1: the scriptures, people.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so uh, people, you know, we laugh, but people actually began to be hostile to Christianity after that. Many of them sold their entire goods, and then they found nothing happened, and they became very bitter toward Christianity. In some cases, churches that taught that doctrine were actually attacked and burnt. Uh, at the same time, there was a growing prosperity. Uh, people began to be very wealthy. From 1844 to 1857, there was a tremendous pr- prosperity in our nation. James Buchanan, the president, at his inauguration, apologized for how wealthy the United States was. He said, there's never been a nation in the world that had to apologize so much for its national treasury. And then, shortly thereafter, one of the greatest economic crashes in American history occurred. October 14, 1857, the banks failed, and people were in great despair. Well, around that time, there was a businessman named Jeremiah Lanfear, just a humble layman who was appointed by his church to kind of do outreach. And he began to see people wandering around in the streets in despair. And so he wanted to open his church building up to uh, to have prayer meetings. So he asked his pastor if he could have a Wednesday afternoon prayer meeting for business people, starting at noon. Opened up the doors the first day, and there he sat. i, I got to tell you, this story is very important to me. Uh He opened up the doors for this prayer meeting, and nobody came. million people in New York, nobody came. And he could have at that point said, fine, I give up. He didn't. He waited, and he kept praying, and about a half hour later, heard footsteps. Somebody came in and began to pray with him. Pretty soon, some more people came, and by the time it was over, six people praying uh, in this prayer meeting. He said, this is great. Let's do it again next week. So next Wednesday, they had another prayer meeting. About 24 people show up. Next week, he had another prayer meeting. About 40 people showed up. And two days later was the crash. And the next meeting had hundreds of people. Mm. And if he had given up, think of that, that wouldn't have happened. And pretty soon, they found that they couldn't contain all of the people. They had to make it a daily prayer meeting in New York City, a daily prayer meeting where hundreds of people were coming. They found that they had to expand it. At one point in New York, and this time, there were counted 12 prayer meetings, some of them with people attending in the numbers of 600, 800. There was one prayer meeting with 1,200 people showing up every day. That prayer meeting began to spread to other cities. Other major metropolitan cities began having these daily prayer meetings. Some of these prayer meetings actually went on into the 20th century. And this... uh, This great revival, what one historian called the event of the century, utterly changed the face of the United States for 40 years. Uh, One of the great products we had from that was a man who was in Chicago who was converted during this revival, simple shoe, shoe, shoe salesman, started a Sunday school class, grew his ministry, Dwight L. Moody. And that revival, it only lasted for about nine months, but the effect of it was carried on by Moody for 41 years. We had uh, the Salvation Army start then. We had missions that are still existing today, China Inland Mission, for example, uh, uh, many different. uh, You you open up a hymn book today in a church, and you'll find about half of the hymns Mm -hmm. in that book come from this revival. You know, we always sing these oldie, fuddy-duddy hymns, These were hymns that came from this great revival movement. And it's exciting to read about it. And it was a prayer movement without any particular leader. It was just simply people gathering together to pray, and it utterly changed our nation.
1: Yeah, one guy who started out praying all by himself could have been discouraged but continued and then was joined by by many others.
0: I'm I'm hoping for people who are listening to be encouraged to gather prayer meetings. And don't be discouraged. Keep doing it. When people don't show up, keep it going. There were other movements as well. Yes, yes. Thank you. (laughs) We need to keep moving on. The global awakening came about 40 years later, and that was the movement that we talked about earlier the The Welsh uh, Revival. The Welsh Revival in 1904. There was a mid century resurgence, and this is a name given to it by a great historian named J. Edwin Orr. And this was a kind of an expansion of religious interest uh, uh, after World War II. And uh, it was carried on by the ministry of somebody we all know very well, Billy Graham. There was another movement. I consider this to be a revival, the Jesus Movement in the 1970s, carried on by Billy Graham, Chuck Smith, others. It was largely a college and youth revival. This would be what we would call a specialized revival. But I can still talk to people today who were converted to Jesus Christ in the Jesus movement, and they're still following him today.
1: That would be my husband. Yes. Yeah, he came to Christ during that, that, that period and is still walking with Jesus today. Dan is a
0: Jesus movement guy.
1: He's a Jesus, Jesus movement guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to take a break here in just a moment, but I hope you are encouraged um, by these stories of how God has moved in this country in the past. And just maybe your imagination is sparked just a bit. What would a revival look like? In the 21st century, maybe you are the start of that revival. You just simply decide you have a you feel a great burden. You begin to pray. You invite others to come. You're not easily discouraged. And God moves in our community. Can you imagine the nation being transformed because folks like you and me decide we're going to start praying and praying with with earnestness, with a seriousness Uh, And to consider some of the things that we've been talking about here today, we're going to take a, a break here in just a moment. When we come back, we're going to talk about the challenge moving forward, because I believe God is putting on the hearts of many of his people some of the very things we've been talking about and um, we'll uh, we'll move forward in our conversation. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Greg Allen is my guest, pastor of Bethany Bible Church, and we're talking about revival. I'm reminded of Psalm 27 that says, "Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord." Another translation is, "Some uh, boast in chariots and some in horses." I think historically we have looked to politics to resolve the issues of our day. We've imagined that if we get just the right person in that office, that that will resolve the issues and the problems that we're facing. And what I'm seeing is a great disappointment in the institutions and the politics of our day, which it's discouraging to see that. But on the other hand, I see it as a great opportunity. We are recognizing the temporary nature of man-made solutions. They might for a moment. Uh, provide relief. They might provide uh, some direction. But ultimately, politics is a game of change. One minute it's this, the next minute it's that. What we're talking about is the kind of fundamental permanent change that only God can produce. And we're talking about how we approach God in such a way motivated by a felt great burden uh, to revive us and ultimately to revive our culture. Mm
0: -hmm. Yes. I think that if we wanted to Focus on what we want to do. One of the things I would encourage people to do is begin to develop that burden. Um, you fight it, maybe, because it's, you, you're so distracted by so many things in our culture. Mm-hmm. There's so many pretty things. Ooh, look, pretty. And we need to really stop and look at the nature of what's going on around us, like today in the news.
1: I, and I love the way you put this, that we develop a um, uh, uh, burden. Yes. How do we do that?
0: Okay. A couple of things I would suggest. First of all, read up on the subject. There's some very excellent resources on revival that I'd like to recommend. One of them, of course, is one that we've referenced several times, and that's Malcolm McDowell and Alvin Reed's book, Firefall. Now, there's a new edition, Firefall 2.0, 2. 0. How God Has Shaped History Through Revivals. And this is published by Gospel Advance Books. You can find it on, uh, on Amazon. Firefall 2.0. If I were to recommend a main textbook, that would be the one. Uh, I could recommend Dr. Earl Cairn's uh, An Endless Line of Splendor, which is the history of revivals and their leaders from the Great Awakening to the present time. An Endless Line of Splendor. And I believe all of these are available. Uh, one that I found very helpful, uh, Seasons of Refreshing by Dr. Keith Hardman. And that one's a particularly good one because that's uh, it has a foreword written by our own Dear Luis Palau. And then uh, one I could throw in there that I think would be very good to read is Jonathan Edwards on Revival. I could almost say anything by Jonathan Edwards mm. would be great to read. But a little short book published by Banner of Truth Trust, Jonathan Edwards on Revival. It's short, and he tells the stories of what happened in his ministry in Northampton. Very exciting and very encouraging. I'd say read those resources and begin to develop the burden. Um, the other thing I would say is develop a personal walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's, I'm playing the role of a preacher. No, I'm, I'm, well, I'm not playing the role. I am a preacher. <laughs> but uh, if you've got sin in your life, something that you know should not be there, you feel the tap of the Holy Spirit on your shoulders, turn from it. Let God have the full dimensions of your life from top to bottom. Learn to talk to him. Learn to study his words. Sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We have a resource that I'd like to recommend on Bethany Bible Church's website. Uh, If you go to the downloads, and then you go down the line, you'll find Bible reading and prayer journals. And these are individual sheets that you can read. They're self-explanatory. Helps you to develop a daily time with the Lord in his word. But develop that relationship. And, And the third thing I would say is, Start forming prayer teams. Just get together with brothers and sisters in Christ who have a common sense of the urgency of the times and just start praying. Ask your pastor for permission. Join in with others, but just begin to pray. I don't know how else to tell you to do it, but just to pray. God will teach you what to do from there.
1: In your notes on revival, you conclude with a quote from Dr. Edwin Orr in which he um, writes on this subject of revival and the challenge for those of us who would like to see God move in our day and to position ourselves in such a way that we are um, humbling ourselves in prayer, that we are responding to the great burden that I believe he himself gives us. Would you share that
0: uh, that yes. quote with us? Yes. This is at the end of his book, Light to the Nations. And this is what he said. Now he's talking about the uh, the revivals of the 1800s in this book. He says, The 19th century proved to be a time of evangelical renewal and advance, in which shone widely the light of the nations. The phenomena of the Great Awakenings brought blessings untold to Christian believer, to the congregation, to the Christian community, to the church at large, to the laboring man, to the world of women, to the welfare of children, to the care of the sick, to the shelter of the insane, to the protection of the unfortunate, to the education of the young, to the governing guaranteeing of liberty, to the granting of freedom, to the administration of justice, to the evolution of self-government, to the crusade of peace among nations. In fact, in the 19th century, the evangelical awakenings may be shown to be the foremost method of an almighty God to promote the betterment of all mankind and his chiefest instrument to win men to transforming faith in himself. And then he says this. And think of our times. The world is now in another age of revolution like the one which preceded the century herein described. Again, a flood of immorality and a wave of lawlessness has enveloped the earth. In some countries, it is said that Christianity has become a waning influence, about to be ushered out of the affairs of men. How long must it take for despair to drive the Christian to prayer for another revival of New Testament Christianity. That's what is
1: such a poignant question. How long must it take for despair to drive the Christian to prayer for another revival of New Testament Christianity? It is a rhetorical question, but one I hope each of us will take seriously because in our day, we are the gatekeepers. We're the watchmen. We are the ambassadors of Christ. Um, and it seems to me that we are being called to be um, moved by the despair that we see in our own time uh, and to prayer.
0: This is our time. This is the time that God has given us to live in, and he's given us a vision of what's going on around us. We need to pray.
1: You write that we often wait for God to send revival in our time, but it may be that God himself is waiting for us to earnestly ask him for it. mm mm-hmm. The testimony of history shows us that when Christians gather together to earnestly pray for revival, their gathering for prayer is itself the beginning stage of God's gracious answer
0: to that prayer. Yes, and we shouldn't wait. We shouldn't wait for God to bring down revival uh, and just sit and watch for it. We need to pray for it now.
1: I want to be a participant in that. (laughs) I know there are people who are now praying for that very thing. I don't want to be an observer uh, wondering, what, how did this happen? I want to be a part of that. I wonder if we don't do this often, but I wonder if you would just close the program in prayer. I would love Because to. I know there are some who are moved and want to be a participant in what God is going to do in our area and to cry out to God on behalf of, our, of the church and our culture for
0: revival. Absolutely. I'm hoping that many of your listeners right now are able to just stop what they're doing, and we will have several thousands in the city of Portland right now praying for revival. Let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, you've heard our discussion. We've touched on things so briefly and so, so perhaps at times inaccurately. You would correct our understanding of so much of it. But, Father, we see one single desire. We ask, dear God, please give revival in our time. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon your church, your people. Reform them. Awaken them. Help them to turn away from the sinful dimensions of this world that keep your hand from blessing and empower them to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ that alone can transform a nation. Help us, Father, to be your instruments in these days, and please give us yet another great awakening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Amen. Pastor Greg, thank you so much. Once again, I want to encourage you to go to the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page, and there you can find the downloads of Notes on Revival we've been referencing. You can also go to uh, bethanybible.org, and in addition to Notes on Revival, you can find some Bible study aids there as well. We're out of time. I appreciate your joining us. Have a great evening,
0: and spend some time in prayer. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast.